The following audio is from Restoration Southside Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee, where our mission is to restore people and places through outreach, authenticity, and sacrifice. For more information, visit restorationsouthside.org. But not during the festival, they said, or the people may riot. While he was in Bethany, reclining at the table in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came in with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard, She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She's done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you and you can help them anytime you want, but you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare my burial, to prepare for my burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money. So he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. If you are in kindergarten through fifth grade and you would like to go to Children's Church, please join our volunteers by the Kids Zone sign. If it's your child's first time in Children's Church, please go with them so we can get them checked in. Thanks, Jacob, for reading. Sounds like you need to work for Audible. That was a Awesome. Um, my name is Ben, and I'm on staff here at Restoration, uh, and we're glad that you're here with us uh, this fall, crisp fall morning. Uh, we're walking through uh, the book of Mark, and um, we're here at chapter 14. There's 16 chapters, so we are very close to the end, um, and I'm very glad to be here. Uh, two weeks ago, I had the flu. Last week, and this past week, I've been moving, and so... I think next week I'm just going to go for run a marathon or do taxes or do something else. It's really painstaking, um, but I'm glad to be feeling better. And thanks for all who sent texts and meals and helped pack up our kitchen and all of the above. So Mark 14 is where we find ourselves uh, this morning. And I want to point out uh, quickly to uh, something that happened in 1914. Uh, in, amid the World War I conflict, uh, on a crisp, cold Christmas evening, there were two sides, the British and the Germans. And slowly they began to leave their foxholes and leave their, their sides and come together into no man's land, the place that they had been battling and shooting at each other. And there they drank drink, they sing, sang songs, they buried the dead, and then went back to their foxholes after Christmas was over. It was called the Christmas Truce. Here we see that very thing at play in Mark 14. A small moment of stillness amid a sharp, dramatic conflict. The, we're going through the first 11 verses. In the first two verses, we see that the chief priests and the teachers are trying to kill Jesus. And then in verses 10 and 11, we see Judas will actually plan on betraying Jesus. 
sharp, dramatic conflict. And yet in the middle, there's a sandwich. In the middle, we see a stillness and a slowness in this episode and vignette of Jesus commending this woman and correcting his disciples and reminding us of who he is and why he's come. It's a story, uh, a short one that, that has multiple characters and emotions and details. Uh, but this morning, we're going to look at three people really in it. We'll look at the disciples, uh, we'll look at the woman, and then we'll look at Jesus. And that'll kind of cover these three points. First, we'll look at uh, what they did, what the disciples did. Second, uh, what she did, what the, what the woman does. And then third, what he does, what, what Jesus does. And so with that in mind... Uh, Let's pray together and ask the Holy Spirit to be with us. Let's pray. Lord, this is a story of you slowing down even as you're hours away from a kangaroo court and a trial and the cross. And so this very day, would you slow us down? Those in this room, us this moment, would you meet us exactly where we are? Because you know exactly where we are and how we are. And as we just sang, Lord, uh, those whose hope is in your grace, they will never be put to shame. Give us faith this very day to believe that truth for us. Be with us as we look at your word. Do a mighty work, we pray, Holy Spirit. Pray it in Christ's name. Amen. So first, what they do, what the disciples do in this story. Uh, Mark 11, Jesus is in the last week of his life. And so Mark 11 and 12 and 13, uh, his enemies, his adversaries, the people who want to kill Jesus are uh, trying to entrap him, trying to get him trying to make sure this Jesus guy just kind of goes away, or at least he's squashed. They're opposing the things that Jesus loves. People like the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Herodians, uh, they want Jesus gone. And here in Mark 14, the people that oppose the things that Jesus loves are his own disciples. And if we read it, we see... Kind of verse 3 and on, it says this, And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. And there were some who said to themselves indignantly, Why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor, And they scolded her. So if we read verses 3 to 5, we see this scene at play. Jesus has just entrapped the people that have tried to entrap him. And he's gone away from the city of Jerusalem to Bethany. And he's reclining with his best friends, eating, having a slow meal. And what happens? But a woman barges in stops everything, usurps Jesus from this dinner party, and begins to dump oil on his head. And the disciples look at her, and all they see is her as a detractor and distraction, as a perfume, as a waste, and all of this is simply a social disruption in their eyes, which means they go on to scold her. 
They go on to lay into her and to be indignant toward her, it says. In, verse, in chapters 8, 9, and 10, Jesus has been explicit of why he's come and what will happen. He's come to die, and who's going to kill him? The chief priests and the teachers and the scribes. And yet in this scene in Mark 14, the disciples are blind and forgetful to that. And they begin to hone in on what's right in front of them on their terms. And it's this woman who's disrupted their party. And so they go after her. And instead of saying to her, bravo, we are in Jesus' inner circle. And and you get it. You get that Jesus is worthy of this ointment and, and all of this stuff. What they do is they begin to lay into her, to scald her to treat her indignantly. They miss it. But what do they, what do they get wrong? Or what's really going on here? What's, what's going on in them? This week I heard a psychologist say that um, so often people are afraid of their own internal inv- adventure, of their own internal anger, of their own internal wishing. And he says, most people know the lives they don't have better than the lives they are living. And most people uh, know better the lives they don't have than the ones they're living. And it's exactly what could be said of the disciples here. They're looking at this woman who stands out above the crowd, who, who makes a loud noise, who makes a loud note, and they're there to put her in her place. And they treat her indignantly. They're angry, they're furious, they mis- their mistreatment. They're there to criticize her actions and her. And in verse four, it says, they treat her indignantly. They look at her indignantly. They feel indignance towards her. Indignantly, that's, it's, it's a Greek word, and it's the same Greek word that's in Mark 10. And in Mark 10, it says that James and John ask their mommy to go to Jesus and say, hey, can you ask Jesus for us to sit at his right and his left in glory? And his mom goes, their mom goes and asks him. And uh, all of a sudden, all the other disciples feel towards James and John, who are trying to get ahead, they feel towards them indignance. They, they're indignant toward them. Same word. And also that same word is used in Matthew 21 when Jesus comes into town and the chief priests and the scribes see everything that's happening with Jesus' triumphal entry. And it says in Matthew 21, 15, uh, when the chief priests and the scribes saw wonderful things that Jesus did and the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Chief priests and scribes and teachers are indignant towards Jesus. The people who oppose Jesus are indignant. The people who are closest to Jesus are indignant, which shows us this. No matter matter your proximity to the person of Jesus, your potential to feel indignant toward anyone, a rise of anger that feels so justified toward anyone is oh so very high. The potential for indignance in our own lives and our own hearts is oh so very high. Take it from John Lennon. In his song, Jealous Guy, he says this. He says, I was dreaming of the past. Jared can sing, I can't sing. 
and my, my heart was beating fast. I began to lose control. I began to lose control. And it goes on to say, I'm just a jealous guy. Later in the song, he says, I was feeling insecure. You might not love me anymore. I was shivering inside. I was shivering inside. It goes on to say, I was just a jealous guy. I was trying to catch your eyes, thought you were trying to hide. I was swallowing my pain. I was swallowing my pain. I'm just a jealous guy. He aptly puts it in his own uh, sense of losing control, in his own insecurity, in his own swallowing of pain. There's no wonder that in his fragility, there's a deep sense of jealousy that acts out. And it's no wonder that when we can create these ecosystems of our declared loves and preferences that are threatened, it's no wonder we feel indignant. In 2003, my hero was the number, number eight for the CPA Lions. It was my oldest brother, Will. And he was nominated for Mr. Football in Tennessee. And so we went, and we went to the Mr. Football ceremony, and uh, we went, and he was against two other people. And I've, I thought to myself, of course he's going to win. He's my hero. And he didn't win. And so uh, he got this plaque and went to the ceremony, and it happened. Well, the next week on the playground, I had a friend who wasn't really a friend, actually, uh, because he, he reminded me uh, as we're playing football that my brother, my hero, lost Mr. Football. He was not Mr. Football. So the next play, on the play yard, what I did in the game of two-hand touch was plant him like a seed to the ground. No one talks about the things that I call beautiful and that I love greatly on any other person's terms but mine. Don't go there. And for the disciples, what they see is this woman stick out above the crowd. And they say, no, 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 no. And they're indignant towards this woman. They're indignant towards this woman who's wasting something on the, for the sake of Jesus. And for the chief priests and teachers elsewhere, they're indignant towards Jesus. And they'll waste nothing to get rid of him. The potential for indignancy is oh so great in our own hearts. And so my question for you and I this morning is, where do you feel the place of indignancy in your own life? The rise in your own heart of feeling justified because something has threatened your uh, preferences or your uh, declared loves. That you have a rise in you against someone and you feel displeasure that produces this belittling. It could be towards others, and it very well could be towards yourself. For the disciples, they miss it. They miss it. And they're indignant towards the woman who gets it. So if that's what they do, what what does this woman do? The second idea, what does she do that she gets it? What does she do to get it? And it's uh, very obvious that uh, she is undividedly aware of who she's before. She's before Jesus. And it's also clear that she's unreservedly intentional about what she does. She's going to pour out this perfume to Jesus. 
Now, she comes into this dinner party and she barges in and breaks all the social norms and mores just so she can get to Jesus. And when she does it, she breaks this white alabaster flasks, flask and she breaks the container and she pours out the content all on Jesus of, of pure nard. Now, I, I, I'd be shocked if you woke up this morning, showered and threw on some nard. And so we don't really get, nard's not a, you can only think of the office when you think of nard, right, the nard dog. But nard's not a common thing in our dialect. And what it is was this plant in the Himalayans that was imported, and it was a thing of great value. And she had this thing, this, this alabaster flask of perfume, of, of essence. And all of a sudden, when she breaks it, the disciples are furious, and they say, well, we should have given it to the poor. Because it's so expensive. It's 300 denarii, and, which is one year's of wages. It's, she takes the thing of perfume that's worth it, your salary. Now, I don't know what your salary is. You do. Put it in your head. And if you go and you buy a year's worth of salary on some perfume, we probably should talk. I want to smell you. Uh, I, bet it's, I bet it's nice. But... She doesn't just go out and swipe her Amex and buy this perfume. This thing is really expensive, which means it's probably she got it from a dowry, some kind of thing that was a great gift and a leverage, or passed on to her from some previous generation through death, an heirloom. So what she does is she takes this heirloom and takes this thing of great value and it's functionally her security. It's her safety net. It's the thing that, you know what, if anything gets crazy or, or sideways in, in her life or the life around the world around her, she has this thing of great value, a, a year's wages, 300 denarii. She has this thing and she takes it to Jesus and destroys the alabaster flask, which says, up to now, this flask has done its job and it's no longer needed. And she says, the contents that were in this container has up to now has served me well with safety and security. And I'm going to waste it all, seemingly waste it all on Jesus. And it makes the disciples furious. Now remember, she's, socially she's out. She barges in and, and, and disrupts this party. Financially she's out. She busts in and wastes everything of her security and her safety net and her rainy day fund. She seemingly wastes it all on Jesus to the point where she has nothing left. She sees Jesus and she sees a perfect opportunity to give everything she has. 300 denarii worth. Quick side note, there's someone in the room who also looks at Jesus and sees him differently. Because at the end of this passage, he's going to go to the chief priests and scribes and the teachers and, and sell them out for 30 pieces of silver. And yet this woman sees Jesus and sees only a person who deserves the very thing that she has. And she wastes it so there's nothing left. And the disciples seemingly kind of have this veneer of being noble, of we should have given it to the poor, and Jesus knows it's just this kind of disguise for their displeasure at her. And what Jesus does to her says, 
quiets and corrects his disciples and says, no, 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 no. What she's done is a beautiful thing. What she's done is a good thing. And then she commends her. When you seemingly waste things of great value on Jesus, it's actually not wasted at all. And here's what I mean. I'm going to borrow the words of a friend, Alex Waltington, and he says this. There is no thing we give up on this side of eternity for Jesus that the resurrection won't give back 100-fold. And there's no thing that you give up on this side of eternity for Jesus that the resurrection won't give back 100-fold. And that's exactly what this woman really grasped and got and understood fully. She got, hey, he's about to die. I'm going to go anoint him. I'm going to go seemingly waste it all on Jesus because I know that his death is not the end of the story. She got it. She grabbed hold of it. Each week for our our city group, our small group, we study the passage before it's uh, preached on a Sunday. So on a Thursday we gather, talk about this Mark 14 passage. So let's just say, if you're preaching, it is somewhat helpful. And this week, uh, Franny Cash aptly pointed out that how, how easy it is, how it's an e- understandable reaction for us to be critical of those who act with unexplainable faith. The people who act with, we, the people who act with unexplainable faith, that, that they do something we don't have categories for, it makes sense that criticism follows, that indignancy follows. And yet, if we look at Hebrews 11, it starts off saying this. It says, now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance of what we do not see. That is what the ancients were commended for. And then it talks in Hebrews 11 of the hall of faith, of all these people in the Old Testament doing these things because they were wild in everyone else's eyes, and yet they felt like God was calling them into this unknown into what was next, the things that were unexplainable and, and were mysterious. And, and it says how each person was commended for their faith. And here, Jesus in Mark 14 is doing just that. This, this woman doing an act that's unexplainable and yet betting everything on Jesus as she wastes her safety, security net, her rainy day fund on him. And Jesus commends her for it. And here's what it sounds like. In verse 8, Jesus says, She has done what she could. It's a simple phrase, it's a small phrase, and yet it's the heart of the matter. She has done what she could. She really gets it in that, not like the disciples. She doesn't have this sacrifice to somehow acquire and get the attention of Jesus and acquire his love, but she has a love of Jesus that has made itself known in this offering of an alabaster flask and of nard, her safety and security net, her rainy day fund. And so this very day, the question I would ask us is this, what is that alabaster flask for you of pure nard? ointment. 
What is your rainy day fund? What is that security net, your safety net? That you, you know, if everything goes sideways, at least I have this card in my back pocket to play and lean on and to figure things out. No matter what happens, I'm good because I got this. What is that in your life? It could be financial. You've got enough cushion that whatever comes your way, you, you won't be without. It's okay. Money can get you out of a lot of problems. That it could, have a, it could be social capital, that you have enough social capital and, and connections, a herd of connections, that you'll never be alone. That at least I'll never be alone. That you, at least it's options. At least you have options in life in a world that asks for commitment. Because, you know, I don't want to be tied down. I'll never be tied down, at least, like other people. Maybe your, your safety security net is your greatest accomplishment, that you are Uncle Rico in Napoleon Dynamite, and that you're living in the past, and that at least you won't be insignificant. Whatever your flasks of ointment of pure nard is, what I would invite, invite us into this very day is that when you break it and seemingly waste it all on Jesus, it's not wasted at all. Because whatever is seemingly wasted and given to Jesus in this life for the sake of calling him worth it all isn't wasted at all because the resurrection gives back to you 100-fold what's given up. What does she do? She has done what she could. I don't ask this out of um, expectation or to bind your conscience, but friends, what is it today that you could do that Jesus may be asking, inviting you into? And, and we can only do that, and she could only do that because of what he's done, this last idea, what Jesus does. In these verses, it's clear what Jesus has come to do, and he's come to die. Again, we have this literary sandwich. Verses 1 and 2 talks about how they want to trap him. Verses 10 and 11 talk about how Judas will sell him out, and then we have this vignette in the middle. But this sandwich tells us that he is going to die. And Alistair Begg points something out with that in mind. That with this scene in mind, maybe, just maybe, Jesus was thinking through the 23rd Psalm. That's a famous chapter in the Old Testament. It's well known and, and read a lot. Uh, but in this uh, second half of the 23rd Psalm, it says this. As Jesus is there reclining with friends, this woman barging in, dumping this nard on her, about to go uh, to the cross. Maybe the 23rd Psalm was in his head because it says things like this. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. And here Jesus is reclining with his best friends with Judas in the room, the one who's about to sell him out. A 23rd Psalm says, you anoint my head with oil. And this woman bursts in and dumps it all on him. A 23rd Psalm says, my cup overflows. He's in just a moment about to give his friends the Lord's Supper, the body and the blood. And yet with all of that in mind, he says, 
23rd Psalm ends and says this, Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. All of that is possible because in these verses it's clear what Jesus has come to do. He has come to die. And in these verses it's clear why Jesus has come to do it. It's because it's for the people who really get it. This woman who's wasted everything on him and for the people who don't get it at all. Like his best friends who are about to run away into the night and scatter. He's come to die and he's come to die for those he has set his love upon. And in that, he defends his people. What he does to this woman is, as the disciples are indignant and scalding her, he says to them, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? And yet Jesus does the very same for you and I, that when your story, when your sin, when your shame, when the enemy comes to you and throws accusations at you, he stands there to say the very same words he said about the woman to defend her. Why do you trouble them? Leave them alone. And he does that all because he lays it all on the line for the people he defends. In Hebrews 10, Hebrews is this book in the New Testament, and we'll land the plane here, that talks about how the Old Testament had these things and these people, and yet Jesus is better and greater than all of them. And in, in Hebrews 10, it talks about the Old Testament sacrificial system, and it says this. It says about the, the, the Old Testament priests. It says, day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties, Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices which can never take away sin. But when this priest, Jesus, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. What is Jesus in the business of? And it's this, giving himself up for the people who get it and don't get it, all for the sake of them being made more beautiful. Jesus is committed to you and making you more beautiful because he didn't die for you because you're beautiful. But he died for you to make you beautiful. And what the Passion Week tells us is that he's going to the cross. He's zeroed in on it. And nothing can distract him from it, whether it's his best friends, whether it's Satan himself, all because he has set his sight and his affection on there being no distance between him and his people. Friends, Jesus saw you and thought to himself, I'm going to lay it all on the line for them and make it clear that they know my love and there's never separation between us. And in response to that love, not to earn the love, but in response to that kind of love, we get to do what we can and break those flasks of ointment and nard and saying, Jesus, you're worth it.
your resurrection will give back a hundredfold what's given up now. Let's pray. Again, Lord, those whose hope is in your grace, they will never be put to shame. Let us this day, even as we struggle for faith, bet the farm and give it all to you because you are giving us something that will never put us to shame. Wherever we find ourselves this morning, King Jesus, minister deep grace to us and help us run to you with the things of great value to us and break it all and seemingly waste it all on you because you promise to do much with those things, with your cross and with your empty tomb. We pray, Lord, in your name. Amen. Great value to us and break it all and seemingly waste it all on you because you promise to do much with those things, with your cross and with your empty tomb. We pray, Lord, in your name.